Good morning, everybody. It is so good to be with you here on From the Deep End today, starting another week uh, of streaming here on Digital Bible Study. We appreciate your being here, be part of the program, part of the show today. Uh, looking forward to um, everything we have in store for you this week. Um, good, good schedule of speakers, good roster of speakers already lined up, ready to go. Uh, of course, we'll be here Monday through Thursday of this week. Uh, from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Uh, those four days as we uh, study God's Word together. Uh, biggest news, I think, for this week is, other than our normal, our regular schedule, uh, is that we will be, uh, assuming everything pulls together here properly in the next uh, couple of days, we will be starting a, uh, a Spanish language program um, this Friday uh, afternoon at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, hosted by Marlon Ratana, who was with us uh, Friday evening for Connect. Uh, be looking for some of the uh, promotional materials, the promotional um, postings of that uh, on our different social media uh, platforms over the next uh, couple of days. So I'll, you'll be able to share those with anybody that might be able to uh, participate in them. That's um, a, a new kind of endeavor for us. We are looking forward to it. Not exactly sure how it's going to unfold and uh, impact the work here, but uh, it, it is something that I believe is needed, uh, and hopefully it is something that we can uh, help Marlin to uh, to grow into something that is um, um, beneficial and and something that a, a goodly number of people can participate in and uh, learn more about the Bible, learn more about the God, and the study of those things. So that's coming up on um, um, uh, Friday afternoon. So uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to that work together with uh, Marlin. Um, here on From the Deep End, of course, you know what we do uh, on this program uh, for the first hour. Each time we are here together, uh, we just sit around and answer your Bible questions or discuss any topic that might be on your mind each day. Uh, so now is a good time. If you have any thoughts about the Bible or uh, thoughts about anything about the world or anything of that nature that you think might have a, a connection to uh, uh, things spiritual, like related to, to the Bible, or to God, or anything like that, be glad to address them as uh, best I can. Um, I always reserve the right to say I don't know. I always re reserve the right to, uh, uh, you know, to direct you to another resource if I think there's a resource out there better than, than I am to, uh, to answer. Well, it's usually a resource out there better than I am, but you know what I mean. Uh, if I don't think I can give you a full answer to the question, I'd be, you know, I may direct you elsewhere, but we will try our uh, dead level best to give you at least a, a a good starting point for um, um, each of those things uh, that you may have uh, on your mind. So uh, if you would go ahead and start putting those kind of questions in there and we'll be uh, addressing those as we go through the first hour uh, of the program here together. In the second hour of the program today, uh, we are going to be <clears throat> starting our um, study of uh, starting a study of First Peter, which we will then follow up with a study of Second Peter uh, as we move through that book. Uh, wonderful book. Look, looking forward to uh, spending some time in it together with you. Um, uh, audio is in and out. What is going on with my, this is the third, third day in a row. We all have talked about my audio. I don't know what in the world is going on there. Let me, let me try two things here real quick. Um, let me just read real fast. OK, 
Okay, did that. Let me know if that's made any difference. Um, and we'll see if if not, I may have to, as we did the, on Thursday, I guess it was, step out, step back in just to see if it's uh, going to go ahead and uh, clear it up. I, I don't know if there is something else that is, hmm, no response yet. I'll wait to see if you all have anything to come back for me. Um, um, anything, anything, anything. This delay is really annoying when trying to troubleshoot something like this. Um, not a lot I can do about it. It's just the way the encoding takes, and it takes a little while for to get from me to you, for me to, well, to, to StreamYard, to Facebook, to YouTube, back to you, and then and to complete that circuit to get back to us. That's just the, the way that it is. There's nothing we can do about it. But uh, let me know if the audio is working for you any better now, because that would be really helpful. And here I am stalling. That's what I'm doing at the moment. Stalling, waiting for you all to respond to me. Nothing? Okay. Well, you're just not a talkative group this morning. <laughs> Um, but we will, let me go ahead and just uh, finish my thought there as we uh, talk about the uh, study coming up in the second hour of the program. Uh, of course, as I said, we look at first and second Peter over the next few weeks together. Um, wonderful book. Uh, I think it's, um, uh, okay. Johnny says it's better now. Um, the, uh, uh, wonderful book. I believe it's very, very heavily, uh, uh, a Jewish book. Uh, well, now i got somebody saying something different. Let me just go ahead and do that. Let me, give me just a second. I'll be right back. Uh, do what I did last time to see if this, I can't clear this up. Be right back. All right, I'm back now. So let me know if that helped it any. Uh, it's, this is getting annoying. I wish I knew what was causing it. Um, it doesn't seem to be a hardware problem because the hardware seems to be doing okay. Um, but um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. When I play it back in my own ear, it comes back just fine. But I don't know why it's um, um, uh, doing that in the in the as its processes out. So. Uh, but you know, I can play it back through my own headphone. And when I play it back through my headphone, other than the fact that when I do that, it's delayed slightly. Um, everything sounds fine. So it's it's some kind of recurring problem. Uh, Technology is great right up until it's not. So anyway, um, we, we are, um, uh, as I said, looking forward to that study. And hopefully you, you all will uh, look forward to participating in it with us together here in the uh, second hour of the program. So um we have uh, before us, though, our uh, first hour today, and in that first hour, we tend to um, sit around and talk about your, your Bible questions, any comments or thoughts that you have. So um, if you have any of those, go ahead and, and let me know, and we will uh, begin to address them uh, as we uh, uh, have the opportunity to do so <clears throat> to do so today. Uh, before we get to that, though, um, I am thankful for... Um, some of the things that have been going on, I, I just had my first uh, first Sunday at, at Rockledge since it was announced that I'll be taking over the pulpit there. Uh, it's kind of kind of interesting, kind of being back in the in the swing of things as a as a, as a, a full time preacher again. Don't technically start until the first of July, but I did preach this Sunday, and uh, that was just a um, that was just a an interesting 
thing. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it was old, familiar and also new and, and, and challenging all over again. Uh, preached about, um, uh, who Jesus is, what sort of man is Jesus on Sunday morning. And I talked about, uh, the uh, events dealing with Joash and Jehoiada, um, and their, their restoration of the, of the law, restoration of the temple, uh, during the lifetime of Jehoiada. And then unfortunately the, the falling away of Joash in the, uh, latter days of his life, which was, uh, most unfortunate, um, some great lessons there from, uh, from those Bible characters about what it takes to, um, um, get the people of God, uh, back on track, get, get the, get the worship of God, uh, restored to what it should be, get, um, get all of those things, um, uh, operating in the way that, uh, that God would, um, to have them to do. Um, and, uh, in fact, I'd like to maybe just share some of those thoughts with you. At least, you know, it's a great story. I'm not sure how many people are immediately, uh, uh, familiar with it, but it is, um, a very interesting, uh, portion of the scriptures to me. Um, a lot of political intrigue as you start up here in about second Chronicles chapter, uh, uh, 21 or so, um, you have the death of Jehoshaphat, which leads then to son, his son, Joram, uh, taking his place. Um, and then ultimately, uh, we have, um, uh, a man by the name of Athaliah taking over from the, uh, or not Athaliah, excuse me, Ahaziah, um, taking over the rulership of, of Jerusalem, starting in chapter uh, 22. Um, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign in Jerusalem. Um, and his mother uh, was Athaliah. She was the granddaughter of Omri, which was one of the kings of the, uh, of the northern kingdom. Um, but Ahaziah was an evil, evil man. Um, and, um, several things go on in his life in terms of a few battles that he fought that were not necessarily in line with, with the plans of God. Um, but, um, um, at some point, uh, Jehu comes out, um, and under the, uh, 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 uh endorsement of God, uh, Jehu destroys the, um, the house of, um, of Ahab. Um, and he ends up killing Ahaz and kills, um, several of those with him to the point that, uh, uh, that the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Well, uh, Athaliah, who is now effectively the queen mother of, uh, of Judah does something that every mother and grandmother would do. Um, she, when she saw that her son was dead, arose and destroyed all the Royal family, the house of Judah. So that that's, that's, that's a winning combination right there, isn't it? Uh, she, she essentially goes out and kills all her grandkids, but there was a, uh, a, a young lady who was the daughter, uh, of the King took Joash, the son of Ahaziah and sold him away among the King's sons. Um, uh, her name is Jehoshabeth. Uh, the second Kings, or second Kings account of this tale gives her name, I think as simply Joshua. And that's one I, I, I'd like to use cause it's actually something I can halfway pronounce. Uh, but she, um, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away. So uh, she, she was the daughter of Jehoram. So um, Jehoram, uh, especially that would make her 
a, a sister, half-sister to Ahaziah, uh, and she was married to Jehoiada, the priest. So she takes Joash, which would then effectively guess be her nephew, um, and hides, hides him in, in the temple grounds in the house of God uh, front with her husband, uh, Jehoiada, the priest. Um, but as, as the story unfolds, Jehoiada, in, in his seventh year, gathers all the Levites, gathers all the Israelites around, um, and um, leads a rebellion against Athaliah. Uh, gets all of the priests and the Levites, all those that are on and off duty, everybody's together. Uh, thirds, third shall be gatekeepers, a third will be at the king's house, and a third at the gate of the foundation. Uh, and they're going to stop anybody from entering the temple, except all that are holy, all that have grounds to be there. The Levites will surround the king, uh, each with his weapons in his hands, uh, who, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Uh, but, you know, except those that are there, uh, that are holy, that are allowed to be there and protecting of the king. Uh, and so as you keep reading through Second Chronicles 20, what's this, 23 now we're in, um, the Levites and the priest gather together um, and they guard the king. And at the end of this procession, they begin to chant, you know, long live the king. Um, Athaliah hears about this, and her response to it is, this is treason, this is treason. Uh, it's there in verse number 13. She tore her clothes and started try crying out for treason, treason, but um, uh, she had no supporters left. And the, uh, the, the tide had turned against her, and uh, the only thing that is said to her is, um, uh, do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they took her, uh, and they went to the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. Um, and so that brings you to the reign now of, of Joash starting under the, um, the auspices, under the control of, um, of Jehoiada. So a very dark time in the history of the nation of Judah. Up until the time that perhaps they were carried away into captivity, um, this is one of the darkest days that you'll ever find in, um, in uh, uh, the history of this nation. It's just a horrible, horrible time, um, and uh, it has been coming. You know, the, the reign of Jehoshaphat two or three generations ago was not too terribly bad. Uh, Jehoshaphat did several things that were good, uh, but after Jehoram, Ahaziah, and now Athaliah, we have a child uh, just a few years old at this point. I believe he is uh, seven years old when he begins to reign um, as now the king, and there's no there's no leadership in place. Um, and Jehoiada kind of steps forward and, and begins to take that role uh, while, the, while uh, Joash is, is aging into the ability to, to serve as the king of, of Judah. Um, so, you know, you, you look at this time, um, the temple has been desecrated. Uh, we kind of skipped over it as we're su su surveying this text this morning together. Uh, the temple has been desecrated. Uh, Athaliah has taken many of the possessions, many of the treasures out of the temple. Uh, the worship of Baal is unrestrained, um, and th there's there's no momentum. There, there's no purpose. There's no um, uh, there's no strength at all in the nation of Judah, and uh, it, it would not be maybe a slight overstatement, but it is certainly um, there is certainly a parallel or at least a comparison that can be drawn uh, to then. And in the state of God's people today, um, you know, we, we are very much <clears throat> in, a, in a world that is particularly 
uh, here in you know the, the Western world, you know, it's inside the United States. We have a there is a, there is a growing hostility against all things that are are uh, you know associated with what is known as Christendom, Christianity, uh, and, and there is a a um, animosity toward um, God's people that perhaps is is unparalleled in in American history, at least certainly not in world history. You know, obviously you've got the Jews and you've got the Romans and, and so on down the line, but um, it is certainly unparalleled when it comes to uh, the history of this particular nation. Um, and given what's happened to us over the last several years and, you know, the litany of things we could go down, there is a great deal of um, um, great deal of discouragement going on among the people of God's people. And there are a lot of congregations, a lot of pockets of God's people that are just sitting and kind of waiting for things to um, uh, to get better. And I think you know the I think the old expression, the old military term, is shell shocked. I think there's a there are, there are a lot of uh, individuals that just kind of feel that way, um, and that's kind of the situation that Judah's in now. You know, I think Judah's situation is probably a little more dire uh, than ours is. Uh, it's certainly more centralized because of the nature of, uh, of, of a, a, you know, a theocratic nation state as opposed to what, what we are in, in, the, in the Lord's kingdom today. So perhaps it's, you know, it's easier to pinpoint because there was a singular temple, a singular location, and, 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 a, and, and all of that to, um, um, to focus all of the attention on, whereas ours is obviously spread out in, 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 in many, many thousands of uh, points of light across the country and then ultimately across the world. Um, but the the social or at least the, um, well, maybe spiritual condition, maybe a better way of saying it, uh, in both in both instances, I think there's a decent parallel there. Um, and as you read through this text, there are several steps that are taking place that, that help to, uh, to get Judah out of that situation. Uh, just starting in verse 17 here, the people after the, uh, well, First of all, Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the 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 uh, the, the the people of the Lord. And so, in this in this darkest time, what happened? Well, the very first thing that happened was that they made a a, a clear statement. Uh, they they remembered, they committed, they made a pledge about their loyalties and their devotions. Now, we're God's people. No matter else, no matter what else has happened to us, we're going to be God's people. So I believe that's the starting point for all of this is a recognition recognition of the fact that that the path out of here is not to turn away from God, but to turn into God and, and run into his arms. We are God's people. And once you have your identity established, I think the rest of it begins to fall in place. And since we're God's people, well, then the people, they, uh, they went into the house of Baal immediately. And they tore down his house, the altar, and all of the images, and they even took Matin, the king of the, or the priest rather of Baal, and they, and they put him to death. Um, so once you identify who you are, um, the next step in that process is to get rid of the things that tear that, that hinder that identity, make a decisive kind of change in, in your life. Okay. Once, once it's clear, okay, uh, the path that we're going to take and the path that we're going to take is we're going to be God's people. Once that's clear, you've got to make a hard, a quick change of things. Whatever it is that hinders you from that mission, from that vision, you've got to you've got to you've got to strip it away from your life. Um, you can't live in two worlds. This is one world uh, or the other world. Okay, and then look at verse eighteen. Jehoiada posted watchmen 
for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings to the Lord as it was written in the law of Moses uh, with rejoicing and singing according to the order of David. Look how many times it's said here in this text. Um, Je Jehoiada posted these watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priest. He got the right people in charge. Uh, David had organized to be in house of the Lord, so he's got the, he's got the right authorization. They're offering burnt sacrifices to the Lord as it is written in the law of Moses and then according to the order of David. So there are about four or five appeals to authority right there. So you know who you are. You've gotten, you've gotten, you, get all, you get rid of all the things that distract you, and then you actually follow God's plan. You follow God's plan. So you honor the person. You honor the thing. You, you say, we're God's people. Well, then we're going to do things God's way. There's got to be a, then a purity of action. Doctrine matters. Beliefs matter. Teaching matters. Action done, done in accordance to, to the authority of God. All of that matters. If you, want to, <clears throat> if you want to get God's people back on track, you've got to call them back to God's word. That, that's, that's, the only way, that's the only way you begin to work. Um, and so that, that's what they did. And then look what the next thing they do. Verse 19. He stationed the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. That is a complete departure from our cultural norms today. Um, there was a call to purity, purity in terms of working, working on the plan of God, working with God's people. If you're unclean, you don't get to come into the temple. If you're unclean, Okay, so that, that's not the path that we take today. Our world is built on relativism, uh, tolerance, so-called tolerance, and so on. And so many people, even inside churches, have this idea that the way to grow the church is to be as, to be as inclusive as possible. Welcome everybody, just come as you are, you know, kind of mentality. And I don't have any problem, certainly don't have any problem inviting people to hear the gospel. Let them come as they are, as a part of hearing the gospel, absolutely. That's what they need. They need to hear the gospel preached. But this is that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about taking letting people participate, letting people to be in fellowship, to be integral to the work of God's people. That that kind of compromise, that, that kind of uh, uh, lackadaisical attitude toward the truths of God never helps God's people grow. That never helps God's people get back on track. Uh, there's a standard of Christianity. And Jehoiada understood that under the Old Testament. We need to understand that. Uh, we need to understand that today. Um, God's people are called to be unique. Part of that uniqueness flows out of a proper identity that we are the Lord's people, and we are going to be holy as he is holy. Uh, standards matter. And you want to restore the energy and, and the power of God's people once again, got to be able to do that. Okay? Now, Looking here in the next part is just to wrap this up real quick. Um, interesting, two, two, I think two last points here. Verse, verse four of chapter 24. As Joash ages, he decides it's time for him to restore the temple because Athaliah had uh, uh, taken a lot of things out of, uh, out of the temple, as we said. So Athaliah tells the Levites to go out to, to Judah and to Israel and start collecting taxes. Bring the money in to help us fund the temple and to restore the temple. The Levites, he says, though in verse number five, or, or uh, uh, the, yeah, verse number five, they did not act quickly. So Joash, who had been the, the, the student to the mentor Jehoiada, 
calls Jehoiada in and he says, now, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord and the congregation of the, of the congregation of the, of, of Israel for the temp, for the tent of testimony. Okay. Um, why have you not done that? Why have you not done your job? It's interesting to me that Jehoiada is the one who makes the covenant, renews the renews the walk, and now here is Joash holding Jehoiada accountable for following through on his mission. Um, I think this is this is a point that really could be emphasized strongly in our churches, in our congregations today. Uh, leadership holding members accountable for doing the thing they say they're going to do. You know, a, a member says, "I'm going to teach this class," or "I'm going to organize this thing." Uh, or, you know, the deacon's been assigned that responsibility, and too often we just, we don't act with any urgency. Uh, Jehoiada's problem, or Joash's problem, rather, is that they didn't act quickly. We're trying to get this done, and we can't get it done until you do your job. Um, oftentimes, we are, we are uh, fearful of, of having those kind of confrontations uh, inside the church, and we just let things keep slipping and slipping. Oh, I'll get to, oh yeah, I forgot about this week. I'll get to it next week. We don't, you don't, you don't get to get, you don't get to get to get away with that and keep your job at a corporation. Uh, you don't, you don't get to do that. You know, the, the, the company that I run, if, if, if one of my technicians just forgets to run his route one day, uh, he's going to hear about that that day when the customer calls and says, Hey, where's my, where's my, where's my tech? Uh, he's going to, he's going to get a phone call. He's going to get a phone call. What happened, man? Um, and it's going to happen that day. And then he's going to be told, uh, you know, get out and get your job done. Because if you don't, I'm going to lose customers. The business is going to collapse. Uh, and if you can't get it done, well, I'll go do it for you. But don't but don't bother showing up to work tomorrow because I don't need you. I can't rely on you. Okay, maybe a little harsh for, for what we're doing here in the church. But some that same kind of mentality uh, needs to exist. We need to hold each other accountable. But more importantly here, uh, for the majority of this time, Jehoiada has been the leader. Now, Joash is technically the king. And as he's aging, He's starting to, to step into that leadership role, and that's a good thing. But for most of this period of restoration, Jehoiada has been at the head of it. Now, that's so that's a two-way street. Leadership needs to hold the members accountable for the things that need to get done in the church. But guess what? Sometimes Jehoiada needs to be called out because he got he got he got slaxed in his in the fulfilling of his duties. There needs to be a sense of accountability inside Lord's Church. This is serious work we're doing. Uh, and you need to you need to step up and get the work done. And when you step up to volunteer to do the work, you need to get it get get it done. And leaders, you know, sometimes, you know, it is. I understand the there 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 is a a benefit to having uh, an eldership sometimes slow down and and you know act with a with a deliberate hand uh, to keep passions to keep keep. Uh, uh, things happening too quickly in the church to uh, make sure that nothing goes awry. That that there there there's there's wisdom in that. There absolutely is. But I've also been in elders meetings dealing with topics, and we keep talking about the topic for six months. Just keeps coming to recurring recurring action item on the on the elders agenda, and it takes six months to get any kind of decision made. Um, no, act quickly when you need to act quickly. Once you know something needs to be done and you have an idea about how to do it, and the reason they had an idea how to do it is because Moses had told them how to fund this thing. Moses had told them that the Levites were required to do that, required the Levites to do this, 
tax was levied by Moses and you should be out there getting that done. Um, you know, so the, the sense of accountability, but then there's one last point I want to make here. Um, there's a statement made about, um, um, Joe Ash, um, um, and where is that statement? I thought it was, is it, there it is in verse number uh, 15. Where is the statement on Joash? There it is, all the way up in verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I really wish that verse stopped there. But it doesn't. That's a great statement to have said of, uh, of you. That's the same kind of statement that was made about Asa, about Hezekiah, about Josiah. Great, great statement to be made. Except that it is then followed by this. All the days of Jehoiada the priest. That should say all of his days, all the days of his life. It doesn't. It says all the days of Jehoiada the priest. So you get down here to verse 15. Jehoiada the priest grew old and full of days and he died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now look what happens. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. All the princes of Judah. You notice who we haven't been talking about the whole time in the life of Joash? All of the, the political powers, the players rather, the powers, the, the princes, all of the nobility, all of the, the wealthy, all of the important, you know, the important pretty people of Judah. It's just been God's people doing God's work. And now that Jehoiada is gone, these, these snakes have access to, to, to Joash. They have access to the king, which means they have access to the king's treasury and they have access to the king's laws. And they come and they suck up to the king. They pay homage to the king. And Joash listens to them. And in a moment's decision, they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and they served the ashram and the idols. And the wrath, and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. They sent prophets. God sent prophets to bring them back, but they would not pay attention. And there you go. Um, Zechariah comes, says, why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? He has forsaken you because, uh, you, because you have forsaken the Lord and he has then forsaken you. Uh, Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada that Zechariah's father had shown him, but he killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. And yes, that's exactly what happened. Joash ends up killing the son of Jehoiada. That's how far he turns. In a moment's weakness, maybe his true colors come to light, I don't know, but people come in and they, they, get, they give him gifts, they make him feel real good. He's, he's finally successful, he's finally, he's finally part of the in crowd, and he forsakes everything that had made him the person that he was. Uh, it is amazing inside churches of Christ. How many times a church grows into some kind of, uh, you know, it does the job right, it does its work right, 
and it gets some kind of prominence, it gets some kind of position, and all of a sudden the vulture circle, leadership listens, and all of that is taken over and used to ultimately try to tear down the Lord's church, to, to mock and to ridicule it after everything that it's done. Uh, you want to keep the restoration going, you've got to remember how you got there. And you got there by being clear about the kind of people that you are, that you were truly the Lord's people. So great, great text. Um, uh, it, it's one that um, it's one that we overlook. I don't know how many times. When was the last time you read through Second Chronicles 23, 24, right? Uh, but man, even just um, just a great, um, great, great thought, great, great thing to consider. So uh, with that introduction, I know it's a little lengthy introduction, but I just, it was uh, on my mind. It was something I preached yesterday. I wanted to share that with you all some this morning. Let's turn to a, a question or two that we have in the comment section. Uh, let's see what we have here. Travis says, when you have a work where eight to 10 couples are in adulterous marriage, how, what, when would you approach the situation which consumes much of that congregation? Well, um, that would depend, Travis, on several things. Um, um, the way that you approach it is, of course, uh, you approach it biblically. All right. Um, as we just talked about, the number of people that this is going to impact is not the standard based upon which we um, uh, we make our decisions about how we're going to deal with this. If there is, and it doesn't, I don't care what the sin is. You, you talk about the adultery, uh, adultery inside of marriages here. Okay, that that's great. That's one sin. Um, but if it's um, if it's um, any other violation of the word of God. I don't know that it, you know, it matters in terms of our view toward it. Again, the text and, and fidelity to it and to the God that gave it to us is, is, is the ultimate and on some level, the only consideration that matters. Whatever actions we take have to give honor to the text. Okay. Not contradicting that, but certainly balancing that is I like that phrase that Isaiah uses uses about Jesus the you know the as Isaiah portrays him as the suffering servant and I don't raise it is it Isaiah 35 um talking about the about, about the way that he would enter into the people that he would um uh that he would not um um I break the um um let's see if it's uh, 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 um I'm looking at Isaiah 35 right now. Um, I, don't, I don't see it. It may not be 35. The, the, the language of Isaiah is that he will not break the bruised reed. Um, I'm sure I can find that quickly enough. But when, when Jesus came, um, um, he would not do that. Um, let's see if I just type that in real quick, if it'll pop up for me. Um, Isaiah 42? Is that right? Of course, it's going to be right. Um, mm -hmm. That's where I thought it was. Okay. Um, but that, that's the concept. When Jesus comes in, that he's not going to uh, to break the, the bruised reed. Um, 
In other words, there's somebody in that. There's somebody already in. Uh, uh, um, ah, there, well, it's quoted in Matthew 12, Matthew 12 and verse number 20. Um, let me go ahead and put that back up there since I've talked about it so long now. Uh, there it is in Matthew. He will not. He will not. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone in, 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 in hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick uh, he will not quench. Um, I believe that that's a valid spiritual approach, valid uh, spiritual principle as well. Uh, if you're dealing with a with a church like that, and you have eight or ten couples that are um, already engaged openly in sinful activity, and you have another eight or ten couples that if you go in like a bull in a china shop, to use that old cliche that my dad used to always use to me when when, when we were acting, you know, roughhousing too much in the house. Um, if you go in like that and just start ripping up and tearing up stuff, what's, what's going to happen to all of the people that are watching how you handle those eight or 10 couples. Um, and that, that is a consideration. Thank you, Christine, Isaiah 42, one to four, uh, that that's a consideration that needs to be, uh, added into here as well. Um, I need to, I need to have fidelity to, to the word of God, but, there are innocent people and maybe some babes in Christ uh, that are in that, in that situation. Um, and I need to be very careful about how we address this so as not to, um, you know, to, 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 to sm- the uh, quench the smoldering wick, you know, the, that, that flicker of faith that is growing in somebody that um, might actually one day grow into a into a into a, a raging flame, that 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 accomplishes a, a great deal, and so that's that that's always the balance, um, and it's easy to fall on either side of that, <clears throat> to 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 drag your feet and not do something, in the name of well I don't want to hurt innocent people, or something along those lines. I don't want to cause trouble in the church, or to go in there just guns a blazing. And say just as we talked about in the first hour of the program, uh, if, if nobody nobody who is any way unclean, you know, can, can come in here, we we have to keep this place pure at all cost. Um, I believe you can accomplish both of those tasks, but it does take um, it does take a great deal of wisdom and judgment to navigate that properly. Um, probably what it takes, depending on how the situation is unfolding it probably takes a great deal of time. Now, if this is a problem that has just existed in a place for a long period of time, um, I believe my first approach would be to start working with these people individually and see, see what the actual situation is in each one of these couples individually. Now, if, on the other hand, there is a contingent, uh, there, there, there exists a contingent of these people, a, 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 you know, a party of these people that are flaunting it, they're, they're, maybe they are proudly um, uh, declaring the, the, the rightness of, of, of their actions in, in clear violation of the word of God, um, then that's going to need, you know, you don't necessarily have a great deal of time there because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So uh, some of it's going to depend on the um, on the disposition of the people with whom we're whom we're dwelt are, are dealing. Uh, so I mean, I, I boy, that that's a that's a tough one in terms of being able to get to a very specific uh, answer to the question because there are just so many variables. 
you know, even even the size of the uh, the congregation that you're talking about. Uh, you know, if you're in a congregation of a hundred and you've got eight couples that are, that are in uh, uh, unbiblical marriages, uh, that that's a huge portion of the congregation, uh, and that's that's another problem. Is that if if you have that percentage of people engaged in that activity, um, or those kind of activities, uh, you know, it's likely in a congregation of that size, given how familial oriented we are, that some of those you know those those let's just say it's eight couples. Those eight couples probably have family connections to most of the membership. And so you've just walked into a situation where, um, you know, you're in the minority and all the, the, with all the family connections, good luck, good luck turning that place around. Uh, In that, in that instance, you know, there's probably a, I think I said this last week, there's two ways that you can preach that sermon. You can pack your bags and preach it, or you can preach it and pack your bags. That's probably what's going to happen there. Um, and in that situation, I'm going to take my shot, probably. In that situation, I'm going to guess there aren't that many bruised reeds around. And um, uh, and even if the bruised reed is there, that bruised reed is going to be overwhelmed by the the influence of these, uh, of, of these uh, um, uh, well, apostates from God. So uh, my only hope of saving the bruised reed is to, is to, is to say something that might, might spark some curiosity in that person's mind. So in that kind of situation, yeah, I'm going to uh, probably take a much more aggressive posture. Now, if I'm at a church that has five, 600 people in it, well, that's probably a couple, 300 marriages. Um, you know, <clears throat> when I was at Katy, that's about how many people we had. Uh, and we had a couple, three on the roll. I mean, we had, you know, we had, when I left there, we were having about 550 or so in attendance. But that means we probably had 750 people on the roll any any given Sunday of which, uh, 550 of which would, would show up to worship. Um, you know, and we probably had, I don't know, probably 100 people that were technically on the rolls that hadn't shown up in forever. But what are, you know how that is in, in any kind of, um, any kind of church. Um, so is it possible we had eight to 10 couples that if we investigated fully were in bad marriages? Possible. I know we had three or four that the elders had, um, uh, knew about and had had discussions with and, um, had work out, you know, that they had, they, I think they had in some, um, with some measure of wisdom, done a fairly good job in a difficult situation of um, proclaiming the truth to these individuals. Um, and while at the same time, not just casting them off, which I don't know would have been helpful. Um, but, um, and, some of, and some of them, that the reason they handled it the way they did is because it really looks like this is probably an unbiblical marriage. Um, but, you know, sometimes you get to the point where you don't know. Uh, and it's tough because sometimes this happens before somebody becomes a Christian. And when you start trying to uh, get the details of exactly what went down, um, you know, they don't, the, the, the person who's never been a, a, a part of the, uh, never been a Christian before, doesn't really think about their previous life with the same specificity tempered by or shaped by, um, 
you know, our connection to the biblical text. And sometimes when you start talking to these people, they, 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 they don't talk about it in the way that we do. It's kind of like when you sit down to talk to somebody about baptism. And if you don't get them to write it down first, how they were saved, by the time you teach them about baptism, they'll say, oh yeah, that's exactly what I did. Well, no, it's probably not because I know the church you were a part of and, and that's not what they teach over there. And, and they'll, they'll argue back with you, you know, just, just as adamantly and as, 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 as uh, uh, I think as usually as innocently as you possibly can. No, 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 that's exactly, no, I didn't, you're, you're wrong. That's exactly what I did. And so you get that kind of, you get that kind of um, a back and forth. And sometimes it's real hard to get down to the actual truth of the matter. So, I mean, it, it's, you have all of that going on and mixing up. Um, a lot of it to me would simply come down to how is the leadership handling it? I think I've said this in the past with you in, um, in, in talking about the, the issues with marriage and divorce within a, or trying out for a, a, a preaching job somewhere and sitting down, sitting down, interviewing with the leadership. Uh, there are two questions I always ask about marriage and divorce. My first question is what do you believe about it? Because I want to know, do you have a commitment to the text? Um, I don't even particularly care if we agree on every single hypothetical that you can come up with. Uh, you, you can you can craft, you know, give me enough time, and um, I can craft a um, a series of hypotheticals that would probably uh, separate most brethren. But there are two or three that you know you could come up with that are fairly obvious that usually. Um, Cause brethren to um, to um, uh, separate pretty quickly. Uh, you know, the, the the one to me is the most obvious is uh, can a person remarry after the death of their previous spouse? Um, even among sound brethren, that question usually separates us almost. You know, maybe not quite fifty fifty, but that one usually se separates us about fifty fifty. Um, I'm of the belief that after the, the death of all your previous spouse, you're allowed to remarry. Uh, a lot of very sound brethren don't believe that, and I'm, you know, it's just that that's that's fine i'm not gonna because we're i don't think either of us is trying to ignore the text i think each of us is trying in our own way to honor the text so i don't particularly have an issue with it one of us is wrong but i, I don't know that one of us is ultimately going to be condemned to hell for being wrong on that it's a tough issue um so it's those kind of things i just want to know if you honor the text uh even if i don't agree with every judgment every every about every hypothetical that somebody can come up with i just i just want to know that you, you that even if we don't agree about every single scenario, at least we're on the same page about the text. And then the second question I always ask is, what are you going to do about it? What do you actually do about marriage and divorce in the church? Um, because again, tough job for elders. You can take the hard line. And that is anytime we find somebody that has some questionable activity in their past, we're just going to we're going to go full bore until that person either repents or we end up draw, withdrawing fellowship from them. Um, and I'm not saying that doesn't work. I'm not I'm not going to say that that doesn't ultimately get you to the place of purity. Um, I think though, um, it can distract you from a larger mission. Uh, we have not been called into the church to take care of everybody's marital problems, right? That, that, that's not what the church exists to do. It, it's not a, a marriage purification society. The church is, is is called to, you know, build each other up. Obviously, all the one another statements in the um, in the text, but also through the individual members of it, it is the vehicle by which God has chosen to evangelize the world. Um, 
and you can spend so much time dealing with these kind of things that you never get around to doing the thing that you're actually supposed to be, we're actually supposed to be here for. Um, and that is to, you know, to preach the gospel. I mean, when was the last time we went around to everybody's house and started checking their internet browser history? When was the last time we started looking at all their text messages on their phones? When was the last time we went around and started looking at everybody's bank accounts? Because they might be greedy. They might be covetous. They might be a liar. They, may, they might be engaged in sexual immorality of other sorts. They might, who knows what. Okay, we don't go around doing that, that on any other topic. We teach the truth. When it becomes obvious that somebody is doing something out of step, hopefully we address it and so on. But for some reason, when we get to the marriage issue, that one we feel like we have to fix. And I'm not saying we shouldn't address it by any means. I remember where we started. You've got to be faithful to the text. But you can get zealous about this. There can be a zealotry about it. Um, and I don't know that in the end that that kind of zealotry actually overall helps the body of Christ. So, uh, I don't, I didn't come up doing this off the top of my head. I think I probably listed for you there about six or eight different variables that I would take into consideration, uh, before I took a, a specific action, uh, about what, what should be done here. Um, I, I didn't mention, but I, I did see, um, um, uh, somebody up here, who was that? Um, I didn't mention it, but they did right at the start. And um, and now it's gone. Where did it go? Um, well, it was Mimi. I think that was what Mimi's the one I was thinking about there. Uh, ask God for wisdom. So let me not, as I did not mention that in my opening, let me hasten to add that back in here. This is a real good time for there to be some prayer. Uh, let, let, let's 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 make sure that's that's a part of this process as well. Um, and as a part of that, let me also then add. And before I go back and look at some of your comments, um, let me um, let me add that there has to be there there has to be then some trust uh, in each other. Um, you know, personality has a lot to do here. Some people love confrontation. They, they thrive on confrontation. And other people are much more deliberate uh, in trying to, uh, to, to, to you know, slide up to, to, a, to the point of having a confrontation. That's not a biblical thing. That's a personality thing. And there, there are you know, certain men and certain women for certain times. On Mount Carmel, you need Elijah, right? Elijah is the perfect prophet for Mount Carmel. Um. I don't know that you need Elijah in front of David. You need Nathan to come up with a story, an analogy, to kind of sneak David back in, in, around to, to, to the realization of what he's done. Does Elijah work in front of David? Maybe because David is David is David, but maybe not. Two entirely different approaches. One mocks, one ridicules. The other just kind of slow walks David to an epiphany. Both are biblical, both are valid. And sometimes when we're dealing with these issues, we're not actually dealing with a difference in belief about the text. What we're actually dealing with is a difference of personality, and both personalities are biblical. Now, sometimes a one, personality, one personality is better for the time than others, but both personalities are biblical. So don't, don't, 
don't allow just necessarily judgment to um, um, convince you that somebody else's commitment to the text is not as um, um, valid as yours. Okay, and sometimes so that is that's a real thing in these situations as well, particularly from those um, I think that are more aggressive and want to deal with the situation quickly, and look back and think the 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 hesitancy and the more the the, the deliberateness of um, of others is a sign of weakness. Okay, um, so I, just another another aside here, another 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 layer here rather, and I think that's part of the reason you have a plurality of elders overseeing churches. Is because hopefully in that group you have a uh, a variety of these personalities, and can kind of temper the rough edges off of each other, right? Uh, and that's why it's also important for an eldership to understand that and work together, whether together with each other, um, because those differing personalities in that eldership um, can sometimes have the same tension in those meetings that we sometimes have among the membership. Um, you know, the worst thing that can happen in an eldership is everybody have the same mindset. Because um, then you just get that that echo chamber where a particular view, a particular path is just just gets amplified and, and the elders can work themselves up into a, a quick, you know, a little bit of a frenzy about how to handle the situation. And, and there's nobody there to say the other, to, to, to voice the opposing, uh, the opposing opinion. So uh, that's important as well. Uh, just because somebody has a different judgment on the matter does not necessarily mean their commitment to the text um, and um, their commitment to uh, to handling the situation is not greater or lesser than yours necessarily. Now it could be, it could be, uh, but not all, not always. So you got to take some time with it as well. Um, let's see, um, lot, lots of comments there. Let me let me get to Connie because one of the things I said earlier, and this is right on that question. What do you believe the outcome is for someone who was in an unscriptural marriage and then the spouse dies and they say single, single from then on? Um, well, I mean, um, if somebody's in an unscriptural marriage, death is not the solution to it. Okay. Uh, if somebody's in unscriptural marriage, repentance is the solution to it. Um, and the reason, the reason I say earlier that I believe somebody can remarry after the death of their spouse is because I don't believe the restrictions about remarriage are punitive meaning that because you sinned in your marriage or you sinned in your divorce, that therefore you have forever abandoned the right to marry. I, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. What I find in Scripture is Romans chapter 7, while the husband lives, you cannot be married to somebody else. That's not punitive. That's, that's legal. You have a marital contract engaged. Okay, And the reason you can't remarry is not because you're being punished. It's because there's already a marriage in place. Right, so for me at least, once that once the person that you originally married passes, there's no longer marriage in place, and I can't find the verse in Scripture that says it's punitive. Once you do wrong, you have forfeited your right to do that thing ever again. Uh, I believe it's the, the reason you can't remarry is simply because once you're married, unless God divorces you, you're married, and you can't have two of those. You can only do one of them. So. Um, but for an unscriptural marriage, what that means is at some point, either you or the person that you marry was uh, unlawfully divorced. Okay. Uh, the fact that the person that you were in that unscriptural marriage with passes doesn't mean you ever repented of your sin. So here you are. Let's say you are the single person, the person who's never been married before, 
and you marry somebody that does not have a biblical right to remarry, you are technically in an unscriptural marriage, quote unquote. Technically, you're not in a marriage. At least not one, not one recognized by God, right? Because the person you married was already married to somebody else. So technically, from, from the eyes of God, there's no legal bound, there's no bound binding that no legal binding there to begin with. You're just committing adultery with that person. But you know, that's why as you notice I when Travis used that phrase adulterous marriage, I almost never use that phrase. A marriage cannot be adulterous. Now you can have a marriage in which adultery is committed to people who are legally married, and one of the spouses goes out and commits adultery with a third person. That is a marriage in which adultery is committed. Or you can have the other situation where somebody is unscripturally divorced and they quote unquote marry somebody else. But Romans chapter 7 says very clearly that this person is still married to another. Now, again, I understand the accommodative language there that you're, you know, so that if she is married to another, she shall be called an adulteress. Okay. There's a legal statement there that there is a marriage. Minding, but I, I, try, I try to say unscriptural or unbiblical marriage because technically that second marriage, at least from a legal standpoint in the eyes of God, does not exist. The first bond is the one that matters. So here's my point. I'm the single person. So I had the right to marry. I just married the wrong person, right? The person that I was married to now dies. Well, I was never actually married to that person to begin with, not, not, not from a legal standpoint in the eyes of God. The person that I, that I had, quote, unquote, married was married to another person. So I've, I've, I've never actually, from a biblical standpoint, been married. I've been single the whole time. I've just been having adultery with somebody else's, with somebody else's wife. That's all I've been doing. So can I remarry at that point? Well, I think I can because I've never actually been married. So what would prevent me from being married? I think I can What's the problem, though? The problem is I never repented. I never repented of my adultery. The problem is not that I can or cannot remarry. The problem is that I lived for 10 years or however however long in a quote-unquote marriage I had no right to be in, and for 10 years I was committing adultery and saw nothing wrong with it. That's the problem, and I never repented of it. So I can go off and marry again because I never technically married in the first place. But unless I repent of my adultery for the last 10 years, I still have a problem with I still have a problem with being saved because I've been living in open sin for 10 years and I'd never acknowledged that I was wrong and I never repented of it. So that's where I would go with it, Connie. Uh, now others might disagree with me on that. I, I, I say might. Others do disagree with me on that. They, they, they do believe it is punitive. Once you enter into a bad relationship and call it marriage, once you've done that, you can no longer ever remarry after that point. That is that is a position out there from several conservative brethren that that, that you would know and trust, and that I know and trust. Um, it's not mine though. So I mean, these again, that that's why this is a hard issue. The text the text is not hard. Understanding the basics of the text and the actual language of of the biblical text on marriage it's really not all that hard. The application of it in all the different circumstances and stuff that we get into. So my judgment would be. To get to your point, this person's problem is not the legality of their marriage. This person's problem is they have never repented of their sin. So that, that's where I would go with it. So um, even if they stay single from then on, I believe they still have a very ser- serious problem. The fact that they either marry or don't marry, is not that, that's my point. Their problem is not that they either marry or don't marry from that point forward. 
The problem is they've never repented of the thing that they did prior to that. And unless they address that spiritual problem, what to do from then on else doesn't really matter, does it? So that, that's where I would go with it. But um, uh, others, somebody, others would obviously disagree, disagree with me on that. And you are more than welcome to do so. Um, and hopefully we can still be friends at the end of the day when you do. But, you know, as I say on this topic, I'm much more concerned about somebody's fidelity to the text than I am their ability to reason properly from it. If that makes any sense. Okay. Um, I, I can understand the text, but then my reasoning and so therefore my application of it in all of these myriad of, of circumstances, it's just human reasoning at that point. And we can be flawed when we do that. But my, the, fact, the fact that I reason improperly from a verse doesn't necessarily mean I don't believe in the content of the verse. And I try to remember that really, I really try to remember that on topic like marriage and divorce. Um, I know some guys that in order to get to their position, I believe undermine the text completely and, and, and rewrite the text to get them to, to get them where they want to be. And those guys I will oppose immediately because they haven't just reasoned wrong. They haven't been faithful to the text in my estimation. And to me, that's a huge issue that has to be addressed. Um, but judgment and reasoning on all of these issues, I'm a lot more tolerant of that when I trust that the person who is trying to do these things, because they're hard, they're hard. So if the person I, if I trust the, the, the fidelity of that person to the text, I have a lot more leeway in terms of, of, of my, my judgment on the, on those person's decisions. Doesn't mean I agree with them. May think I may, it may, it may, I may still believe they're wrong and their counsel that they're giving to other people may be, you know, I may be, I may believe that it is biblically uh, harmful, so I'm not saying I won't have a conversation with people about it, won't approach people about it, but that's a different than saying I'm going to oppose you as a false teacher. Um, and I, I think we would do well to, um, to to have some patience with each other because again these things are these things are difficult. So that's where I am on it, Connie. Hopefully that's um, something you can at least understand, even if I say um, um, even if you understand or even if you understand things differently. I hope you at least appreciate. The uh, attempt we hear, we try to make here to uh, to be faithful of Texas as we can. Oh wow, it's nine oh seven. I got to stop. Wow, y'all got me talking. That's all. Awesome. <laughs> so I'm gonna stop right here. Uh, we're gonna take a shorter break as I possibly can, and we will come back and uh, do the uh, begin our uh, examination introduction of the book of First uh, Peter here together in just a moment. Be right back with you.
All right, everybody, welcome back to the uh, second hour from the deep end, actually the second little bit here, because I went really long in the first hour of that, and I, um, um, sorry about that, I got carried away uh, talking about some marriage and divorce issues there, but um, hopefully we can still get a little bit covered here in our um, examination, or opening examination of the um, the book of First Peter together. Um, wonderful book, um, and Oh, by the way, uh, let me know real quick here. Uh, this is when we've been having issues the last couple of days when I come back from the break about the sound breaking up. So I tried to enter the room and come back in during the break as I have uh, done the last couple of days to fix it. So before I get too far into that, if y'all could just let me know if the sound is doing okay. Um, and here I sit waiting. Uh, okay, Jim says everything's good. So uh, hopefully that is across the uh, across the board there. Um, so there's got to be some kind of software conflict that's going on. I don't know what it is. Um, I'm thinking it might be the last couple of days I've been on. I have two user accounts on here. And right now I know the second user account is logged into. Uh, and that's, that's unusual. And I use a virtual audio mixer um, to help me do the different things I need to do. And I wonder if the other user account is also using that audio mixer at the same time and somehow... It's it's giving a um, a conflict on the you know maybe, maybe across the USB bus that the stuff comes in on that that'd be my guess but I don't know so I'll play around with it until then I'll just have to keep working with it and if y'all ever hear anything be quick to let me know so I can address it and try and get that fixed for you but it's funny how you've been doing this now for almost well two and a half years and now all of a sudden it's decided it wants to start acting up after all of that time and I have no idea why. But anyway, let's turn our attention over uh, to the book of First Peter. Um, and since I exited the room, I have to restart my uh, screen share again. Um, First Peter, well, um, what's it about? You know, the same questions we always ask when we introduce a book. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, I, I, we've, done, we've done this now three or four times, I guess with Romans and then with Jude and with Obadiah. So now we're on our fourth book, um, First uh, Peter. If I were to pull up for you a um, a more substantial commentary on, let me go ahead and do that. Let me go ahead and pull up one here. Um, uh, well, that's Jude. Let me scroll back up. I don't have these things synced. Um, um, hold on. Where are we? Oh, I got to go way up. Let me just go ahead and see if I can't just type it up. Um, when you're dealing with um, the introduction to letters, um, let's see if this, of course, I'll pull this up and it won't have it. Um, doesn't really. You know, we talk about who wrote it and some of those things. That, that in terms of doing a full introduction to some of these books, there are actually other questions that you have to answer. And I don't think, um, now this one doesn't have it. Uh, let's see if James, Jameson Fawcett and Brown has it. Um, 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 introduction to it. Um, you'll see these words, and th this has nothing to do with our study. I just thought about it, and I wanted to uh, to mention it. Um, if you're doing a a completely thorough um introduction to it, um, this is an older commentary set. It's it's the a a, a critical. And, 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 and a commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible. It's it, it's the 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 name for it that when people talk about it, just 
Jamison, Fawcett, and Brown. It's the, the, actually the authors of the book. Um, the very first word out of it, he talks about its genuineness. Okay. Uh, and then sometimes you hear them talk, they'll write about the, um, the authenticity of the book. Uh, and so there, there they are dealing with, I think it was Jonathan. I haven't seen Jonathan here this morning. Jonathan actually suggested doing a study entitled um, uh, General Biblical Introduction. And in that study, that's actually a, a good deal of what you're um, a studying. So you have two things you need to consider about a book before you uh, consider that book to be legitimately part of the Bible. And that's more than just authorship. That's more than just the date in which it was written. Um, you need to have both. The book needs to be both genuine and authentic. And those mean two separate things. What you're saying is, number one, the book has to be the book that that um, um, was actually written. Okay, It has to be the real article. So you could have a book that was attributed to, to Peter, but over the course of time, that book got alter, altered. So is the book actually the book that Peter wrote? And then, of course, is, is the claim of the authorship actually the right claim? So it, the, the discussion of how a book is received gets deeper than simply who we believe wrote the book because we don't actually have the original copy of the book, what's called the autograph. We don't actually have the autographed copy that first Peter wrote or that Peter wrote. So is the book that we actually have authentically and genuinely from Peter? And so in commentaries that get into a longer introduction of these things, you will you will have, uh, and by the way, this is usually uh, attested to by, by um, 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 uh, extra biblical sources. And that's what here in the, um, in, uh, well, Fawcett wrote this particular portion, the introduction to First Peter. But um, uh, the genuineness is, is attested to Second Peter by Second Peter 2.3 on the authority of Second Peter, see the introduction. We also have a statement from Polycarp. We have a statement from Eusebius, uh, and then we begin to, you know, you, you, we have Eusebius mentioned again. We have Irenaeus mentioned here. We have Clement of Alexander. And so what we have is quotations of First and Second Peter in some of the early church fathers that attest to the genuineness, the authenticity of the book of First Peter. So you're looking for here what he's doing. He's looking for extra biblical sources that verify that the book we have is actually the book they had. So that's also a part of the process in establishing where these books come from, who they are, and so on. Now, we haven't been dealing with, dealing with that in our introduction uh, because that's that's not a question, at least initially, that, that I think you as our audience would have. But it just popped in my brain as I was starting to talk here about First Peter that it's 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 something that that if if you're going to study these things in more detail and in more depth, it's it's kind of a heady discussion. It's you know you start reading about it, it's it's about as about as 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 as, as dry as rice could ever be. Uh, it, and unless you have a mind for uh, those kind of details, that kind of uh, those kind of his, that that kind of historical nuance, it's not it's not the most energizing study. I think I told you the only B I got while I was in the Memphis School of Preaching, um, at least on a text you know biblical class. Was uh, was on the topic of general biblical introduction. My eyes get glossy when, when you start reading about all this stuff. I will tell you in a heartbeat, my eyes just kind of gloss over, and I, I don't have the tolerance for it that perhaps I need to have 
in order to uh, engage in that in that discussion fully. But this it has nothing to do with our our to talk about First Peter. But um, if you've never come across those concepts, uh, they are important. They they really are important because you have to establish that the books that we have are authentic and that they are genuine in order for them to be authoritative for us. Um, and it's, it's a question when it comes down to canon, which books belong in the Bible. Um, and that's a question that comes up often, particularly among skeptics. So as you're, as you're dealing with somebody that might not have faith in the Bible, uh, they probably um, have read an article somewhere to make you think that, um, uh, that, um, um, that, that the Bible canon was just made up. Um, so let, let me give you just real quick here uh, a, another example of what I'm talking about with something being authentic and genuine. Um, there are books out there called the Apocrypha, right? The, the Catholics have them in their Bible. Uh, sometimes you'll see common, you know, um, um, uh, not, not common, but um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Popular type writings. Um, you know, you, you put out an article, Maybe you'll see it online somewhere. Maybe one of, some of your skeptical friends will put a uh, link to an article on Facebook or something that talks about the lost books of the Bible. Okay, none of the, none of the books of the Bible were lost. And, and what they're talking about is the Apocrypha. Um, you know, different gospel renderings, different, uh, you know, so-called epistles that were written and so on. Um, we have, and we always have, had copies of those books. So that in that sense, those books are, they they those books are, um, they're legitimate. It's not, it's not as if we don't know what they say. Um, you know, they are in that sense, genuine. They, they, it is the real article. It's not that the church has disputed or that Christianity has disputed the content of, um, you know, uh, the gospel of Judas. It's not that we don't know what, what was in the content of one of those. We know what was there. We know what was said. The book is genuine. It's real. Problem is it's not authentic. It's not actually authentic in terms of its being part of the canon, and so uh, those are. It, so it has to meet both of those characteristics. It has to be both the real article, and it also has to be an article that has uh, uh, um, authority for being actually a part of scripture. So those are important discussions, but it is not. It is not um, um, one that we have been addressing. So again, nothing to do with our introduction here. Just wanted to stop and, and at least mention mention that. Um, in a broader context, if you want to do a full introduction to these books, uh, you would need to address those issues. And fortunately, other people have, and you can read them as you have uh, interest and need to do so. So we are working under the assumption that First Peter is both genuine and authentic and belongs in the canon. And it was actually written by the person that says that it is said wrote it. Okay. Um, so let's deal with a shorter introduction here. This is just Let's just read through the introduction of the ESV. Uh, that's just in the regular text there, and use that as our launching pad to talk about some things. Um, in the introduction of the ESV, it simply says, the readers of the Apostle Peter's letter were confused and discouraged by the persecutions they were encountering because of their faith. Uh, Peter exhorted them to stand strong, repeatedly reminding them of Christ's example, the riches of their inheritance in him, the hope of his returning again to take them to heaven. Uh, Peter explained how the how Christians should respond when they suffer because of their beliefs, uh, he's called the Apostle of Hope. Uh, Peter's primary message is to trust the Lord, live obediently no matter the, your circumstances, uh, keep your hope fixed on God's ultimate promise of deliverance. Uh, suffering is to be expected, but it is temporary and yields great blessings for those who remain steadfast. 
And then uh, it says Peter probably wrote this letter in the mid 60s um, AD. Uh, now that's a bad error from the ASV, uh, ESV, because AD is always supposed to precede. So anyway, um, not a lot I would disagree with there, although we need to expound upon it more fully. Uh, I agree with the dating of it. Uh, somewhere in the early to mid 60s uh, is about the time this book would have been written. Um, um, evidence for that in terms of the dating would be that is, as you scroll through the book, at least for me, um, the as we, we have used this passage, passage in studying Romans and other places uh, that we've been talking about, uh, the fiery trial has come upon them already. Um, here it says when it comes upon them. Uh, other translations will render it uh, has come upon you. Um, the time has come for judgment to begin. Uh, so the fiery trial has come. Judgment is, 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 is the time is here for it to begin at the, at the household of God. But probably the strongest verse I would point you to is 1 Peter 4 and verse number 7. The end of all things is at hand. Uh, now that's a verse that gives people a lot of fits. Um, but for me, it's actually a very simple one. And for me, it helps me identify the date of the book of First Peter very clearly. We'll talk about this obviously more fully when we get there. But um, the, the language to me is pretty clear. The end of all things is the end of the age. Peter is one of those standing there at the Olivet Discourse. Um, and he's also there at the temple grounds and so on when Jesus is going over all these matters. You know, when they ask him at the temple grounds, what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the age? Peter's one of the men standing there. And you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he's the one that asked the question. He's standing right there when that's said. He knows when the end of the age is coming. And he knows that judgment is going to come to the point that even the very elect would be, be hard for them to be saved. Uh, and that's what um, uh, Matt, Jesus says in Matthew 24, that um, except these days be shortened, uh, no flesh should be saved. And then he goes on to say, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So people are barely going to be saved by this or from this, from the great tribulation. And then Peter says here at the, about this fiery trial, the time when judgment comes to the house of God, uh, the, here's a period of time when the righteous will scarcely be saved, which is in, in stark contrast to what he says at the beginning of his second epistle, where he says to them, um, um, where's the abundant entrance into the kingdom in first Peter second, it's gotta be second Peter chapter one. Please don't tell me I got something wrong again. It's gotta be, where is the abundant entrance into the, into the, uh, all right. See, um, <laughs> boy, that was supposed to be right there in second Peter chapter one, uh, through which we partakers of kind of sinful nature. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. It has to be in there, Second Peter chapter one. I've lost it, but in another place, Peter says about the abundant entrance that you're going to have into the kingdom. That's not First Peter chapter one, is it? That's First Peter chapter one. I'm very mad at myself. Um, no, it's not First Peter chapter one. All right, this is a translational issue because the King James, I thought it was in Second Peter chapter one, says the abundant entrance into the um, into the kingdom. But the point being here is that this is a different period of time. This is a different metric that there is a period of time in which the righteous are scarcely going to be saved. Okay. So for all of me, for that, for all of that, that, that helps me to try to get a sense of when this book is written. It's, it's written at the onset of some very great trials in, not just in the personal lives of the child of children of God. These are not personal trials that are going on 
chapter five says about about these trials, uh, these these trials are happening. Um, uh, verse nine of of chapter five. These same these same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Second Peter one eleven. Thank you, Travis. I thought I was right, but I was wrong when I thought I was. No, I was I was right, and then I was wrong when I thought I was wrong. Yeah, but Second Peter one eleven. Thank you, Travis. Uh, so in Second Peter, there's an abundant entrance into the eternal kingdom, as opposed to here, where there are those that are uh, uh, scarcely going to be saved. So two different standards. Two two different metrics are being applied here. So all of that to me says. This is at the onset, the beginning of the days of what Jesus would refer to as the Great Tribulation. All right, uh, his audience. So we're always who's talking? Peter. We know about Peter. We could spend you know the rest of the time surveying the life of Peter. Um, I, again, with the audience that we have here, I don't think that's probably necessary. Uh, I know y'all are very much aware of Peter and who he was and and, and his life, and uh, we may go back from time to time as we study through the book. But uh, his authorship is well established here. No particular reason to doubt his authorship unless you're just uh, a, a persistent uh, and antagonistic skeptic of Scripture. There's very little doubt about the, about the writing of, um, of the book or who wrote it. Who's he writing to? Well, he is writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Cappadocia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ with the sprinkling of his blood, okay? He is writing to the elect, <clears throat> excuse me, he's writing to the elect exiles um, of, of, those, um, of those people, okay? Um, and he lists several places here. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, let's see if I can pull up a map that has a listing of all of those places in it. Um, this one might have it. Um, yeah, that's not too bad. So this is, of course, let me zoom out, zoom out on this map. And you have on the right-hand side here, if you can see it, obviously there's modern day Israel and, and the promised land and all of that. This is actually a map of Paul's third missionary journey, but it has most of the provinces highlighted for you. All right. Um, so what we have here would then be, you know, this would be, of course, modern day Israel and then modern day Syria right up in here. And then this nation right here would be modern day Turkey. All right. In the northern part of the Mediterranean. And so what we have here is you can see all of most of those provinces listed. Asia is the westernmost part of um, of Turkey. Uh, there are actually four parts inside of Asia or sometimes referred to as Asia Minor. So the word Asia is not referring to the continent of Asia. That, that's a modern thing. When we talk about Asia, we're talking about a province in what is now um, Western Turkey. Chief city of the province of Asia is going to be the city of Ephesus. So Peter is writing his book, at least in part, to people that are in Ephesus. That's important because of how significant the book of, uh, or, or the book of Ephesians and the church at Ephesus is uh, in the first century. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about the most prominent churches in, in the Bible being Jerusalem and Antioch, and, and that's probably true. But I want you to think about how much how much of the New Testament flows through the city of Ephesus. Obviously, the book of Ephesus is written to Ephesus, or Ephesians is written to Ephesus. Um, John, we believe, lived for a time in Ephesus. We think Timothy was there for a time. Revelation is in part written to Ephesus. First Peter is as well. Second Peter is written to Ephesus. 
Uh, depending on what your what your thoughts are, first, second, and third John are either written to or from Ephesus, um, and so on. It is a central and critical city and 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 uh, a church in the first century. It 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 is. Ah, we talk about Jerusalem and Antioch, and then sometimes we skip over and talk about Rome. Don't don't sleep on the church at Ephesus in terms of the people that were there and its significance in in the biblical uh, uh, biblical development. But uh, Ephesus, and then he mentions Cappadocia, he mentions Galatia, he mentions Pontus and Bithynia. So essentially, the place that Peter is writing to is 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 throughout modern day Turkey. That is his audience. Now he describes them as the elect exiles. All right, of the dispersion. So these are exiles of the dispersion. That is very much Jewish language. Uh, you can see the same kind of language uh, in the book of James. Where James says in, in James chapter 1 that he, has, he is writing his book to 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now, I take this to be quite literal in terms of the audience that's being addressed. I take the dispersion. Now, obviously, this is a callback, a, a reference to uh, the history of Israel, because you have the dispersia of the Old Testament, uh, which is, of course, uh, the time of the captivity, the, the fall of both the northern and the southern kingdom, primarily the northern kingdom, because the practice of the nation of a, of a nation and to disperse them throughout their empire. That way there was no population center. And as I understand it, their philosophy was that if there's no population center, it's going to be harder for them to organize and create some kind of a revolt against us. Whereas perhaps the, 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 the uh, standard practice of the Babylonians and the Persians seemed to have been to keep people together in population groups. That way you can keep an eye on them and perhaps control them. Uh, that's why in the book of Esther, uh, when Haman is trying to, to, to uh, punish Mordecai and all of the people of Mordecai, they're able to put out a decree that says you can kill all of the Jews. And the reason that you could do that is because you knew where they were. They were living in their communities. So you could find them and kill them. It'd be much harder to do that to the northern tribes that were dispersed throughout the, the, uh, uh, the, the, the empire of the Assyrians because they were dispersed. Now, I don't believe that's who he's writing to, not the people that were dispersed as far back as seven or eight centuries before Jesus. I believe this is a callback, a Jewish mind thinking of the dispersion of the Jews, particularly of the Northern Empire, but also of Judah, during the, the, the period of, of destruction and exile of the Northern and the Southern Kingdom. This happened though in the first century church. In the first century church, obviously persecution begins to arise after the death of Stephen. Uh, one of the leaders of that persecution, of course, is Saul. And you know Acts chapter 8 leading into Acts chapter 9, the, uh, the life of Saul and what he did. Uh, but he, uh, Paul approved of Stephen's execution. And starting from that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem uh, arose. Uh, devout men buried uh, Stephen, uh, made lament over him, but Paul began to ravage the church. And he started entering house after house, and he dragged men and women and committed them to prison. All right, so within the city of Jerusalem, Paul was already beginning to uh, impact the uh, the peace of the church. And then, of course, the verse we all know, Acts chapter eight and verse four. They would those who were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. And so there is that concept of people being scattered abroad, the old King James language. 
they that they therefore which were scattered abroad right so the apostles uh, remained in Jerusalem but the rest of the church began to spread uh, throughout the ancient world now if you go back as far as Acts chapter 2 um, you can see that at the beginning of the church in the city of Jerusalem at that time uh, there were those uh, who were there Parthenians Medes Elamites residents of Mesopotamia Judea, and then Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Pontus, and Asia. So at least some of those who were there in Jerusalem, their homeland was or was in the area that Peter, or to, to which Peter is now writing the book of First Peter. So it's at least not beyond the realm of possibility that some of those three thousand that were initially converted were from uh, the very regions into which Peter is now writing. They would have been in the church of Jerusalem and may, maybe have very well have stayed in the church of Jerusalem up, up until at least Acts chapter 8, when the persecution began to arise in, in Jerusalem and Judea. Perhaps some of those from Cappadocia, Pontus, and other, way, other places returned back to their homeland and took up residence where they had been in the past. That, that's at least possible, in, in, and I think at least in part uh, help, would help describe why Peter has a connection to some of these saints. Because there were there were saints out of every nation that were present in the early days of the church at Jerusalem. Now, so that phrase, in my opinion, uh, that a phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, identifies for you the audience of the book. I believe the audience of the book, if not exclusively Jewish, is certainly very heavily Jewish. Uh, and as I read the book, that's that's the filter that I have on as I'm reading this passage, is that unless unless there's a reason to to hold that the audience of this book is Gentile, my idea is that Peter is primarily writing to Jews leading into the period of the Great Tribulation. I say that also with this thought in mind. Uh, in Galatians chapter 2, as part of Paul's defense of his apostleship, Paul makes this statement about his meeting with Peter. Um, obviously, you've got the, the lead into it there starting in, in verse number um, uh, verse number two, or chapter number two, rather. Paul says, those who seem to be influential, influential, what they were to me makes no difference. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. In other words, they didn't teach me anything. I've already received the gospel. That's what he says back in chapter one. I certify to you, brethren, the gospel I received, I did not receive it from man, neither was I taught it by man, but I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, on the contrary, when I saw, or when they saw, rather, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and then he makes this, this important statement, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also work through me for mine to the Gentiles, okay? And when James and Peter, or Cephas and John, they were the pillars, perceived the grace, the revelation that had been given to me, uh, they, they gave to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So at the, at the Galatians meeting, whatever meeting that is, whether it's Acts 15 or some people uh, dated at a different time, it was very clearly stated, Paul, you're responsible for the gospel to the Gentiles. We will take the gospel to the Jews. Well, 
That being the case, unless circumstances have changed from that meeting in Acts 15, which I think is probably the meeting that's going on there, um, unless that meeting has, unless circumstances have changed, Peter is still the, uh, the apostle commissioned to take the gospel to the Jews. Well, I, I, again, I'm going to take that literally. Uh, that That's his mission. His focus is on the evangelism, evangelizing of the Jews. And it makes sense to me then that when he writes a book to the elect exiles of the dispersion, since he was since was committed unto him uh, the the gospel to the circumcised, since that was his that was his charge, I'm 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 predisposed to think that um, that's probably who he wrote to, and so when he uses that phrase, I'm gonna say, hey, I'll listen to you, man. I, I, I take I'll take you at your word. This book is written largely to the Jews. Now, obviously. By the time you get to the you know 64, 65, uh, you know, 80, 64, 65, uh, any place you write a letter to at this point is going to have Jews and Gentiles in the church. You know, the churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, they had Gentiles in them. So it's not my position that this book is so exclusively Jewish that they can never speak to the Gentiles. It is my position, however, that Peter, like James, had a strong affinity toward preaching to the Jews first. And so that the primary the primary audience, and so therefore the primary focus of this book is to the Jews leading into the time of the Great Tribulation. All right. So that's that is where at least I would um I would start with it. Um let me see what see what uh Travis has got a comment down here. Um I can see where there where there is confusion for those who read the King James because of the word strangers, which we often associate with the Gentiles. Now that's a good point. Um uh because the, the strangers uh in the gate and so on from the Old Testament language would be um would be uh, a, a phrase that you might very very well use of the um of the um uh, of the Gentiles. So that that could I could I could see that completely. Yeah. Uh, but I believe the word translation of strangers there is probably uh, probably tied to the uh, the concept of uh, of the exiles people in, people in a strange and foreign land would be my thought there. Okay, so that's the person Peter wrote it. My audience, I believe, is largely Jewish. I also believe that we are sometime in the mid uh, '60s uh, in terms of its authorship. Uh, we know its destination; it is to Jewish individuals primarily scattered throughout the first century world uh, in, you know, north, in, in the, largely in the modern day Turkey. So these are still, they're not living over in Europe. They're in the Western parts of Asia, uh, the, the continent of Asia, many of them in, um, uh, in the province of Asia as well, then I, I would assume. Um, now, why is he writing? What is what what is the the circumstance that he's writing under? Well, as we read in the, you know, the ESV's brief introduction of it here, um, he's writing letter to, to uh, um, uh, people that were confused and discour discouraged by the persecution they were encountering because of their faith. Right, largely that's true. Now it's very non-specific in in the ESV's introduction, um, but there, I believe, the assessment of whatever editor put that together and wrote that little one paragraph introduction to First Peter, I believe, his, his analysis of the of the text is largely proper. Uh, it's again not specific, and so I think he probably misses some of the uh, the temporal nature of some of the first century struggles that are going on there in first peter but conceptually yeah i agree with that that that's what we're talking about here um we have already explained that um 
this is a period of time in which a great deal of trials are coming. Uh, I believe very specific trials, uh, not just personal generalized trials that happen to Christians throughout all of time. I believe we're talking here about, about a very specific period of time in which the great tribulation is raging. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you can come to any other conclusion. If you're going to, you know, as this, as this, uh, again, whoever the editor was of this um, uh, introduction on the ESV, if you're going to date a book somewhere in the mid-60s, uh, unless you're just not aware of, you know, Matthew 24, you know, it could be that whoever wrote this is, is has a premillennial understanding. He's, a, he's a, a, a full-on futurist who thinks all of the uh, quote-unquote apocalyptic prophecies of the New Testament must be pointing down to the end of time. Um, that, that's, that's possible and maybe even probable, depending on um, uh, the background of this individual. But I don't know how you date a book sometime in the mid-60s if you know that Matthew 24 is about the fall of Jerusalem and you know that Peter was standing there hearing those words from the mouth of Jesus and you know that Peter's audience is the audience that would be directly affected by what Jesus was prophesying about in Matthew 24, the elect exiles of the dispersion. So he's dealing with his countrymen. He's dealing with his countrymen just a handful of years before the prophecies uh, uh, indicating the end of end of the the national capability of those people. How on earth could you could you read uh, verse number six? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I don't know how you could read that and think anything other than, oh wait a minute, these um, uh, di di dispersed exiles are uh, and are, are grieved heavily by the impending doom of their nation. I don't know how you get anything else other than that, okay? So not only are they dealing with just trials, they're dealing with the fiery trial, the end of all things that has come upon them. And they are not just confused. I don't, I don't know if they were actually, I guess on some level confused would be a good word, but I, I don't know that word is sufficient. Um, you know, when Jude says, as we just looked at a few days ago with the book of Jude, he says, you know, don't, don't be surprised that this has happened. Down, down toward the end of the book of Jude, um, Jude, let's go to verse, what, 17 or so. Um, but you must remember the predictions of, our, of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said unto you in the last time, um, there will be scoffers that, that are going to come among you. So don't be surprised by this. You must remember this. You know this to be true. Um, and of course, you know, Peter gives the same kind of warning, not in 1 Peter, but he reminds them about it, well, in 2 Peter 2, but then also in um, uh, 2 Peter 3, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, doing what scoffers do, they will come with scoffing. So, um, you know, the, the, and so First Peter 4, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which has come upon you because you were told about this. You knew this was coming. So to say they were confused, I mean, obviously when you're going through hardship, there's always a, an element of confusion. And I think that's um, uh, Paul's statement in, in Romans 8, 26, for we know not how to pray for, for what we ought to pray for as we ought. So there's a, a level of confusion there, yes. But it shouldn't, that 
confusion shouldn't surprise them in the sense that they don't know what's going on. They were told exactly what was about to happen to them and to their people. Now, what is your question during that period of time? What is it that you would begin to think if you know, again, we are elect exiles of the dispersion. We are largely a Jewish population here. We are in, on, the, on, the, on the cusp of having our national identity wiped off the earth. What might you be tempted to do? If you were, say, an American citizen living abroad, and, and you pick a nation, you, you pick a nation to, to invade us, Okay, let's say France. Yeah, that's not happening. But let's say France all of a sudden tries to invade the United States and starts to win. <laughs> That'd be funny. <laughs> they start to win. And you're living in France. What might you do? You know what you might be tempted to do? I'll tell you what you might be tempted to do. I'm living in a foreign land, and this foreign land is bringing destruction upon my homeland. You know what you might be tempted to do? You might be tempted to try and help out the home people, your family, your people back in Jerusalem. Remember, if I'm right, people from Pontus, people from Cappadocia, People from Asia were present on the day of the day of Pentecost. They might still be alive. And when they were dispersed from Jerusalem, if you had lived, if you had grown up in Pontus, where would you have gone when you fled? Mm -hmm. Might you know some of the Christians in Jerusalem? If you had lived from Acts 2 to Acts 8 in the city of Jerusalem, do you think you might have made some friends? Do you think you might have known some people? You know, how long do you have to stay in a place before you have memories of that, that little local cafe that you used to go and eat in and all the people you used to sit and drink your coffee with around, that, around the, 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 the tables in that cafe? Wouldn't take long, would it? Think you might have some affinity for it. And when this struggle starts to come in, when these trials start to come in, as you see the clouds of war beginning to build, might you have a thought? Might you have a thought about, hey, I could help here. Am I really doing the right thing? Because just a couple of years earlier, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's what you're hearing from the apostles. As much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Honor the king. Pray for the king. That, that's what you're hearing from the apostles. But you're watching and you're being grieved by the various trials that have come upon you. 
what might you want to tell if you're Peter? What might you want to tell the people that you're writing to about the choices they have made to be a Christian? I got a great one. I've got a great one that you might want to tell them. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't believe this is talking about the second coming. We'll talk about that more when we get there. I believe this is talking about the revelation of Jesus at the time of his judgment. Remember what is said about Jesus, and we'll come back here in a day or two. When the great tribulation comes, immediately after the tribulation of those days, we're going to go through the great tribulation, and what's the end of it? The end of the great tribulation is this. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, the revelation of Jesus Christ. When that happens, when the revelation of Jesus Christ comes, back up here in chapter 1, your faith, having been tested, is going to be shown to be genuine and the fact that it remained genuine, that it was pure, that it was tested by fire and came through the fire purified, not destroyed. The fact that it, was, that it has done that will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look what he says at the end of the book. Over in chapter 5. As he talks through chapter 4 again, time has come for judgment to begin at the household of God. That's where we start. Chapter 5. You're going to be taker of his glories when that is going to be revealed. Just read Romans 8 when you read that. The chief shepherd is going to appear. I believe he's talking there in Matthew 24. Look what he says here. Humble yourself on the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, maybe immediately after the tribulation of those days, at the proper time, he may exalt you. Verse 10, well, verse 9, we just looked at, resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, Remember, that's what we're grieved with back in chapter 1. We're grieved with suffering, right? After you have suffered a little while, same language as chapter 1, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion and glory forever. That's the end of the thought there of chapter 5. I want you to see what is in chapter, chapter 5 and verse number 12. The specific statement as to the purpose of the writing of 1 Peter. By Silvanus, 
or Silas as we know him more, more, more shortly, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, this, that which I've just written, this is the true grace of God. I love the language there. Not the true gospel of God, not the true word of God, the true grace of God. You're about to go through the greatest tribulation the world would ever know. It's going to ruin your home. It's going to ruin your country. It's going to ruin your homeland. It's going to ruin all those things. It's going to test you to your very core. But if you stand firm on what I have written to you about, what I have delivered to you, you will truly experience the grace of God. The content of his revelation, because I do think he is talking here about the gospel. It's the true gospel of God. I just can't help but notice that he refers to it as the grace of God. The way to find access to the grace of God and experience his favor and his blessings is to stand firm in what I've delivered you. I have delivered to you the truth. And if you want to be held up by God, if you want to be confirmed and strengthened and established in your faith and in your life, stand firm in what I've written to you. Don't turn to another direction. Stand firm where I have directed you to stand. I don't have the time to do it. We'll probably do it as we study through the book here because i got, what, five or six minutes until the top of the hour, and I'd like to at least wrap up this introductory stuff today so we can get to the text tomorrow. But let me say in passing, and as, as I said, we'll explore this more as we go through the book some. I believe there's a very strong parallel between First Peter and the book of Hebrews. The same exhortation that's going on in First Peter is essentially the same exhortation you get in, the, in, the, in Hebrews. In Hebrews, it appears there were people who were considering returning back to Judaism. And the Hebrews writer exhorts them time and time again, endure to the end. We are not of those who turn back, and so on. Do not forsake you know, the confidence that you have. Don't, don't do any of those things. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. There's probably a dozen exhortations in the book of Hebrews, maybe more than that, that call people to stand firm, not to give up the good fight, labor to enter into the rest. As I sit here, I just keep phrases keep popping into my brain. There's probably a dozen of them of continue on, keep on keeping on. Do not turn back, even though, because, you know, as, as, as I date the book of Hebrews, it's, you know, if if First Peter's, I say, 63, 64, 65, I, I've got the book of Hebrews 68-ish. Just, just right as the as the fall of Jerusalem is imminent, imminent, imminent. And perhaps if you know the history during that time, the Romans retreated for a while because of some political issues going on in Rome. Vespasian took the armies back to Rome, and it looked like the, the, the Romans had had emptied the emptied the land of Judea. And they thought that a lot many of the Jews thought, hey, we're winning. And people started to turn back and to turn back toward to Judaism. And the Hebrews writers say, no, don't do that. This is exactly the wrong time to do that. Once you have experienced the powers of the age to come, we cannot renew you to a repentance because you won't have the opportunity. You'll be dead. Okay, there's a great parallel here between 1 Peter and 2 Peter to a degree. There's a great parallel between this and the book of Hebrews. It's written, now, different locations, because I believe the book of Hebrews is largely written to Jews living in Judea. 
but it's the same group of people, if not experiencing exactly the same circumstances, experiencing the same um, uh, 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 emotions, going through the same uh, uh, feelings, if you will, and having the same temptation, the same doubts, is I have chosen my life, I've given my life over to going down the path of the gospel as opposed to that which I had before. Is it the right choice? Peter writes to Jews and says, yes, it is. You're the, the genuineness of your faith needs to be tested, and that's what you're going through. And when you come out on the other side of it, you're going to uh, experience uh, greater blessings from God, okay? So anyway, uh, one last point. I guess you need to make this in passing. I don't know that it's a major point, um, but um, where the book is written from is a point of discussion in terms of introduction. Uh, it is written, it says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, chosen sends you greetings, and then so does Mark, my son. So uh, Mark is mentioned here at the end. Peter has obviously some connection to Mark. Go back to the book of Acts, and we'll talk about that more uh, in another time. But who is she who is at Babylon? General ideas is talking here about the church. Uh, Peter's writing on the behalf of the church, probably where he is, uh, which, of course, then leads you to what is Babylon? Where is that located? Uh, there are two metaphorical or figurative uh, ideas that are commonly put forth. One is that Peter is writing from Rome. Uh, normally, obviously, you're going to see this from uh, uh, people that have an, an Orthodox or maybe a Catholic view of it because they have Peter as the first bishop of Rome. And at some point, you got to have Peter in Rome. Uh, but that's, again, largely built upon the thought that the book of Revelation uh, is writing about the destruction, the fall of Rome, um, and uh, the, the chief enemy, the city that is the chief enemy in the book of, ba in the book of uh, Rome, of course, the book of Revelation, rather, of course, is Babylon. And if, Rome, if uh, Revelation is about Rome, then Rome very easily could be, or Babylon very easily could be Rome. Uh, a second view is that Babylon as is uh, is the city of Jerusalem. Um, it'd be people like me who date Revelation early and then see the the um, um, uh, city of Babylon in the book of Revelation as reference to Jerusalem, uh, having no other evidence that Peter was in the city of Rome ever. Uh, and given that Peter, we last see him was obviously still focused very heavily on the uh, on the. Uh, 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 church at Jerusalem, and as this is a Jewish book, that perhaps he is writing from Jerusalem. Um, while in terms of the structure of the New Testament, I'd be fine with that. I don't think it to be the case, um, because if this is, say, 63-64, um, Paul is just in Jerusalem a few years prior to that, and, and, and it, when James meets him, and then ultimately he's put in prison, and it's been you know, a couple of years in prison uh, throughout the different areas of, of, of Judea, and there's no mention of Peter anywhere in all of that. Secondly, um, John's characterization of Jerusalem as Babylon without cause, I don't know that Peter would have immediately done that uh, given his affinity for his Jewish heritage. I don't know that he would have immediately called um, um, Jerusalem Babylon. So I, I'm not a huge proponent of thinking it's Babylon. I reject both of those to start. Um, I don't know why Peter couldn't simply be on a, on a, on a journey as, as other apostles did. And Peter's doing some mission work in Babylon and decides to write this letter back to other people. So um, if I had to pick, if I had to pick one, I would just say, why don't we just let Babylon be Babylon for now and just leave that alone? Uh, if I'm given the other two choices, I would lean toward Jerusalem. 
Um, that would be my fault. Um, but um, I, I don't know the answer to it. It doesn't say. And I don't know that there's any other indication that you can get from the text. Uh, and as my dad is want to say, is want to say when he's on the program with me on Thursdays, uh, if if you know, quoting Brother Camp, if God didn't see fit to explain it, then I don't know. I don't need to know it. But those <laughs> those are the ideas out there. And I I my guess would be it just let it say what it says until somebody can show me why that can't be right. So uh, I take it that that some at some point during the first thirty years of the church. An apostle or people had taken not just trips to the west to go out to uh you know the the provinces listed here and where and obviously where paul went um, i'm sure some of them went south down into africa why couldn't some of them go north up to syria and then head east over that that fertile crescent down the tigris euphrates valley and start to to meet uh, some of those people over there as well i see no reason for that not to be possible and that perhaps peter is over there during the during this time writing this letter back to them I don't see why that couldn't be couldn't be true as well. So anyway, that's the last that I've got. It's just past the top of the hour here. So I'm going to stop uh, and we will come back. And with that uh, introduction in place, we will start our look at the text of First uh, Peter uh, tomorrow on the program. So uh, I will see you uh, back here for the Connect meeting tonight at, uh, at 7 o'clock. And we look forward to uh, continuing our study of the Word of God together at that time. So uh, see you back here tonight. Until then, go out and make your day a great one for God and uh, go out and have a good day, everybody.